Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Dacher Keltner, who's a psychology professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he directs the Social Interaction Lab. He's the founder and faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center, as well as chief scientific advisor to Hume AI. He also hosts a podcast called The Science of Happiness. He's the author of several best-selling books, including, most recently, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. His research work is focused on the biological and evolutionary origins of compassion, awe, love, beauty, power, social class, and social inequality. And these are some of the topics that we're going to discuss today. Thank you for being with me, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Dacker, it's so great to see you, and thanks for coming on uh, my podcast here. I appreciate it. It's good to be with you, Jim, as always. <laughs> well, it's been a little while, uh, actually. Yeah. I know... Uh, there's been a lot going on with your new book, which obviously we'll talk about uh, somewhat. And uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, I'm going to try to cover a few things. And uh, actually, one of the things I thought was sort of interesting is uh, actually your early background, and uh, yeah. which, of course, some people might uh, find unusual. But perhaps if we looked at all of our backgrounds, they would be <laughs> unusual. But m- maybe you can. Uh, you were born in Jalisco, Mexico, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, uh, my parent, I was born in 1961, as was my brother. My brother was born a year later in Jalisco, Mexico, in Ajijic, which is near a town near Lake Chapala. And I was born in a, I, my mom tells me a one room, uh, you know, medical unit. Um, yeah, my uh, mom and dad are, were early counterculture, you know, and they, uh, my dad became an artist. My mom taught poetry and literature at a state university, but they were, uh, believe it or not, they were 23 and they ran out of money. Uh, they were in New Orleans and uh, a former professor of theirs had this house that they could stay in, in Mexico. Uh, and so they moved down there and lived for free in this Mexican town. Uh, the more remarkable part of the story in some sense is when I was born, uh, my two grandmothers got into a car and drove there <laughs> to see this grandchild. But yeah, I was born in Mexico. I lived there three years. And it's interesting, Jim, I, you know, my dad grew up in a part of LA that was largely Mexican American. And so, and then I did too. Uh, I've always had a very close relationship to Mexico and uh, really value it. Wow. That's wonderful. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, I gave a talk, uh, not surprisingly, on compassion at the first Congress of Psychology and Psychotherapists in Puebla, Mexico, recently. Uh, and uh, no, I know, and we have a lot to learn from them. And they asked, and one of my highest um, achievements was my one of my most cherished PhD students, Belinda Campos, who's from Mexico, and 
uh, and now as a professor at Irvine, UC Irvine, she called me an honorary Mexican. That, <laughs> that, that is a <laughs> that high honor. That I have the soul of Mexico. So. Yes, yes. Well, that's funny. You mentioned Irvine because that's where I went to undergraduate. So oh. uh, all, all these uh, connections. Yes, I, I was probably, I was a rower uh, in college as well as a lifeguard. So while theoretically I went to college, uh, I was a rower and a lifeguard. <laughs> <laughs> you were near bodies of water. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, well, uh, I know there's this long, incredible history. Uh, and before we talk about uh, your book, uh, I just wanted to go over a few other things that have yeah. sort of always interested me. And, you know, one is this uh, concept of, uh, I don't know if it's social justice, uh, social equality, uh, the nature of power, and uh, obviously you're world-renowned expert in compassion. But what do you think are the drivers of uh, sort of the separation between individuals versus what I would say is um, our common humanity? Yeah, and and you know, you know, Jim, you and I share this like uh, background of growing up poor and, you know, making our way in the world. And, uh, I, you know, thanks for bringing up the, our work on power and my book, the power paradox, you know, the, for 20 years, um, I've studied inequality and power and so forth and its effects upon justice and connection. Uh, and it really came out of a personal experience where I was growing up in a middle-class neighborhood and my parents moved from Mexico to LA and I was in Laurel Canyon, which at the time, uh, late 60s, was a middle-class neighborhood. Now it's fancy, fancier. And we moved to this really poor town in the country, in the foothills of the Sierras. Um, and it just was astonishing me to go from fourth grade in a middle-class neighborhood to fifth grade in a very poor school, and just to see the effects of inequality and poverty on the nervous system and the body and the ability to concentrate and what kids ate and how their bones broke. And, uh, and to me, that's the great, uh, that's really what's, what divides people, uh, and the ideologies that come out of inequality and, and power and class, how we separate people into those who are extraordinary and the rest of the world. And, and then just the basic structural effects that, you know, uh, that really prevent kids that I was now growing up around from, you know, fulfilling their promise in many ways. Um, so I uh, really appreciate, and it's always important when we talk about concepts like compassion or awe that are lofty moral sentiments that we remember that sometimes life gets in the way of our ability to pursue those emotions uh, and those sentiments, uh, and it's costly. You know, just to think about economic inequality, uh, power abuses, structural issues as things that divide us and, and blind us to our common humanity. No, I think that's uh, uh, one thing that a lot of people don't appreciate is their unconscious biases and uh, how it's something that unfortunately impacts every decision they make and every interaction. Yeah. It's always sort of interested me. And just as a side note, I just did an interview with Marianne Williamson, uh, who I'm sure you probably sh at least share some of her um, views on uh, some of the challenges that are happening yeah. in America and that in fact separate us. And uh, it, 
I don't know if it's the history of America in terms of this idea of rugged individualism yeah. and this notion that if you didn't make it, it's your fault. And that sort of always uh, fascinates me. As you pointed yeah. out, you know, we've lost so many people, uh, many of my uh, friends growing up, yeah. um, you know, they got lost. Uh, they yeah. had no resources, no mentors. Yeah. They got into drugs, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. and people don't appreciate how powerful uh, yeah. uh, uh, poverty is yeah. in terms of ruining a life. It's it's profound. And the same thing with the some of the kids I grew up around. And, and, and it is this blindness to the power of life contexts that the United States specializes in with our, we are, we're the most individualistic culture in the world and we think everybody should make it. And, 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 uh, we lose sight of, of the kinds of things we need to give to all citizens that, that keep us, that bring a fresh, a strong sense of common humanity, which I love your phrase. Well, and I, I think that's why it's challenging because I'm sure you appreciate if you imbue sort of compassion and caring for the other into every action. Uh, this is essentially inexpensive way to uh, uh, help everyone versus yeah. uh, creating uh, situations, as an example, a, a private prison system uh, that uh, they want the prisons full uh, for uh sort of, I always call it ruthless capitalism, uh, uh, and these narratives where somehow removing social services, childcare, feeding uh, children, uh, uh, not dealing with homelessness appropriately with compassion, it only exacerbates the problem and it becomes much, much more expensive exponentially, I think. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I've, I've so admired your work over the years and, and, you know, just this deep commitment to like, if we can commit to compassion and tending to those in need who are vulnerable, a lot of things go better, you know, and, and then you have to start thinking about what are the systemic processes, the ideologies that get in the way of that. And, you know, our work showed that, you know, boy, once you think you're privileged and special and extraordinary, which is an outgrowth of American individualism, you lose your compassion, you know, and then suddenly <laughs> you're in this vicious cycle of like, ah, the poor don't need good schools. You know, we should be able to create them on our own. You don't need resources for that. And so, yeah, I always, I always look for powerful animating sentiments like compassion that, that can do some good in the world if you seed it in the right way. And I think compassion is, is probably our best success story in that. And hopefully all will be the next one. So, uh, Yes. Um, well, I, I'm sure we could go on on this topic. Uh, uh, but maybe if one uh, uh, person in power or with the level of wealth yeah. can sort of see beyond themselves, uh, yeah. uh, maybe at least this conversation will have done some good, at least in one uh, arena. You know, um, and, and just on that, Jim, it's worth, you know, it's always important to return to if we have resources, what we can do. And there's this Atlantic Monthly article, and I can't remember when it was, and we can find the citation where they just asked the question, if, if the wealthiest citizen of each country in the world devoted some proportion of their resources to that country, how big a dent would you make in poverty? Uh, and it's extraordinary. There would be yeah. no poverty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so 
no, it's it's worth provoking on that theme of like, let's yeah. let's get to work on that. Yeah. And, you know, I have a challenge because uh, I have worked not to uh, let my emotions get out of control uh, and to sort of uh, have this uh, equanimity. But, you know, these types of issues that cause so much suffering when you see, yeah. you know, the wealthy on their $500 million yacht yeah. uh, and have 10 homes that sit empty yeah. and you have children uh, who can't, uh, who are hungry. I yeah. mean, it, it's, uh, it's obscene and it's obscene and it's painful. Yeah. But so Keep hopefully. Making, yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, perhaps we should go to more esoteric and high level things that, uh, yeah. uh maybe, uh, evoke a slightly different sentiment. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got this incredible body of work and, uh, um, uh, just to get back to this topic a little bit, you wrote this book, Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life. And uh, I think it does intersect uh, this idea of awe in the sense that uh, I believe meaning uh, comes from being involved with things that are bigger than yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there's... And I love Jane Goodall's quote that I came across in writing Awe, which is uh, just awe is about being amazed at things outside of yourself that are big, you know. Um, and if there's a thesis in some sense of the Awe book, it is, you know, as I was sort of putting together all these ideas and interviews and findings about Awe, this is an emotion that connects the individual to the big sources of meaning in life, a political cause, a moral cause, a piece of music, uh, the ecosystem, et cetera. And, and today, you know, and you rightly frame the question, Jim, um, you know, we now have this science of a meaningful life, which I tried to summarize a bit in Born to be Good. And it really is not about individual pleasure or relationships. It's really fundamentally about the big themes of life you want to be involved in. You know, um, where do they come from in your family history? Where, what do they do for the world? For some people, it might be a spiritual idea or playing music for the masses or helping the ecosystem or working on prisons. And, and awe is a part of this puzzle of meaning. What gives us this sense of higher purpose? Um, and I started to hint at that, as you observed in 2009 in Born to be Good. I said, hey, there are these emotions like compassion and gratitude and awe that they're, they're different than personal pleasures than eating ice cream or sitting in a hot tub. They kind of get you to be part of something large. And then, and then that thesis has continued in the work on awe. Um, but it's interesting, and maybe it's even a paradox, that yeah. is a individual perception of something bigger than themselves can that be distorted, though, through, if you will, their own biases to actually embrace something? As an example, you mentioned politics, a political yeah. ideology yeah. that actually is extraordinarily damaging. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the general structure of this sense of meaning, you know, is you have a sense of yourself and then you 
feel connected and animated by and contributing to something, some larger, what I write about as a system, like this political anti-war movement or how I help clean beaches in an environmentalist movement, et cetera, or I'm part of a church. Uh, and that's the feeling that makes you feel like, like Jane Goodall said, like, wow, I am amazed that I'm part of this thing that's larger than this self. But of course, those can be very dangerous and pernicious, you know, Nazism, QAnon conspiracy theories, Trump rallies for certain people of a political perspective. You know, I was always struck in reading about the massacres of Rwanda and how the Hutus, you know, the massacres began in these chants and dancing and synchronized movement and collective effervescence. And it probably was awe-inspiring, but led to 800,000, 600,000 deaths. So yeah, it, we, these moral sentiments, Jim, even compassion, I hate to tell you, can, <laughs> can lead us astray. And, and we have to, as a society, discuss and debate. Well, I think uh, that's an interesting comment, discuss and debate. I mean, uh, yeah, I have heard people who, uh, you know, we look at Bush's term, uh, uh, what was yeah. it, conscious or compassionate conservatism yep, yep. and uh, and how that's been distorted. And in yeah. some ways, it's like uh, white nationalism. Yeah. Uh, uh, how do you start out, or Christian white nationalism, where you start out with the tenets of Jesus uh, and yeah. somehow this gets distorted to racism, uh, separation, privilege, and fundamentally hate. Yeah. And it's and even you see people as an example interviewing individuals, and uh, I'm not just uh, picking on the right because I think it can yeah. also be on the left. But you yeah. know, they're talking about things that objectively, frankly, are obvious, uh, and these people will bend themselves into knots to justify uh, their perspective. Yeah. No. And. And, you know, that's an example of like looking at the abuses of the deeper ethical orientation of compassion, which I believe does lead, as as the science suggests in your own writing, to more good in the world. The same is true of awe, right? It's an amazing emotion that can make you sacrifice and humble and give to the people around you. All good. But, you know, what if that's in the service of of you know, fascism, or that's in the service of environmentally destructive behavior or religious cult that, that leads to suicides of many. So it's, it's always a paradox, as you said earlier, and complex. Where are <laughs> human, our deep tendencies lead us? Uh, well, and that's maybe another uh, question is, yeah. Many of us from our childhoods carry baggage that, again, may not be at the surface that um, imbue us with behaviors, perspectives that, frankly, impact yeah. every decision we make. Yeah. Would it be uh, fair to say then that a lot of these behaviors or even attachments to uh, negative behaviors uh, can by one's childhood can make them prone to attach to them. Yeah, I really, you know, uh, and I think this is really worrisome when we get to these um, deep, um, deep moral sentiments, if you will, or emotions or, or moral passions, moral emotions, as John Haidt refers to them, of compassion, awe, gratitude. You know, and to think about what are the early childhood 
conditions and social contexts and precursors that cultivate these states. Um, one of the things uh, I think people are really worried about with respect to early childhood today is its extraordinary focus on the self, right? And just like self-focus, I'm a separate individual. Look at my selfie I'm posting about on Instagram. I'm comparing myself to others as an enemy of these moral sentiments that are so important to healthy societies like compassion uh, and awe. And, you know, um, I write about how, you know, this one cultural strain of, of self-focus uh, has, we now know, produced a lot of anxiety and depression in young people. And I believe, you know, grounded in the studies of compassion and all and things like that, that's where we need to be shifting culturally and be thinking about these early childhood influences that we can change uh, in schools and so forth. Well, I, I read a survey and I, I, the number may be slightly off, but it said like something, 78% of high school students want to be influencers. Ah, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll complement that with there's work on role models, people who inspire admiration and awe in us. And it was something like 40 to 50% of high schoolers could not name a single role model, right? So they're, they're not thinking about, you know, some figure who's changing the world, Greta Thunberg or what have you. Rather, they're thinking about how I can be an influencer to this ridiculously small market that they'll eventually have. So we've, we need a cultural shift, right, out of self-focus to uh, the, the beauties of other people. And it's worrisome. Well, I think that's also combined with um, uh, judgment or at least the yeah. uh, uh, sense that every action yeah. you take is being judged by some external thing and yeah. being so focused on that uh, versus uh, having a sense of self, uh, as yeah. you well know. I mean, we talk about happiness and I can tell you from my own experience you know, I used to uh, be focused on, well, if I can just become this, if I can become a doctor, if I can become a neurosurgeon, if I can be a successful entrepreneur, then my <clears throat> uh, insecurity, my shame, it's all going to go away and people are going to uh, admire me. And of course, at the top of every one of those peaks is nothing. Yeah. And uh, it, I think, reinforces the reality that only you can give yourself happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then alongside that is um, we have to think very carefully about how we're pursuing it, you know. And I, I think one of the lessons of studying awe is it's, it's this animator of growth and a sense of common humanity, to use a phrase you used earlier, and a sense of purpose, right? It doesn't need a lot of resources. Um, and, and you contrast that with, oh, I'm pursuing happiness through the American ideology of inc ever-increasing material wealth, which leads us astray. Uh, and I think that this science gives us some guidelines to how to engage in that great pursuit of what, where, where we find meaning and happiness. Well, no, I think that's right. This focus on self, uh, I think, unfortunately, is a, a dead-end path to uh, yeah. unhappiness, uh, misery, and further sense of... Um, of insecurity uh, because yeah. you don't feel you can measure up. And, and this, I think, gets to this narrative of uh, self-compassion. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, um, 
the it was interesting studying compassion all those years in the lab, you know, Jim, and like, wow, if you practice a little kindness, um, things go pretty well. Your nervous system looks better, as you know, and your volume reviewing the literature on compassion is is just a tour de force on force on that's just we can trust that. And then along comes this idea of self-compassion that, you know, when you think about all the societal forces that are making us shame ourselves and condemn ourselves and say we don't weigh the right amounts or have the right pocketbook balance, et cetera. And self-compassion comes along and it's just like, you know, just we all fail. We're all prone to errors. We we do our best, you know, be kind. And God, when I first started teaching that 10, 15 years ago, I mean, people just would start crying. <laughs> and I was like, this message needs to get out. And it's this wonderful companion to the fundamentals of compassion that we need more of today. No, it, you know, it's it's interesting how that works. Uh, as I'm sure you know, I, I mean, I give these talks periodically. And, you know, I, I'll tell a story and, you know, my voice will crack or I'll shed a tear. And it's fascinating because until that point happens, everybody's sitting there. And when you when that happens, so they immediately start crying or connect with themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because people are so terrified of sitting with their emotions. And uh it's very sad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, I gave a talk one time and a woman comes up to me, she goes, Man, you must have been so embarrassed up there. Your voice cracked. I could I could see a tear. Uh uh and that must have been horrible for you. All these people looking at you and judging you. And she says, she says to me, uh, listen, I'm a psychiatrist and also uh, an expert in hypnosis. If you come to me for three <laughs> sessions, I'll get rid of that for you. <laughs> I don't think, I think it's the opposite of what we need to do. You know, I mean, you know, I, it's interesting, Jim, I, you know, one of the neat discoveries in writing awe was this book was people tear up a lot when they feel awe. You know, they, they like when you see somebody else's kindness, you tear up. When you see somebody else's compassion, you tear up. And those tears, very subtle scientific studies are showing by Alan Fisk at UCLA, aren't about weakness or, or loss. They're about common humanity and sharing things that are part of the human condition. So your tears on stage aren't, you know, I'm lost and alienated. Rather, they're signs of we're all sharing something that's fundamentally human, like recognizing we, we can overcome obstacles or, or find a sense of um, purpose. And so I disagree with your psychiatrist diagnosis <laughs> is all I have to say. Yet again. <laughs> well, <laughs> talking about psychiatry is a whole different uh, yeah, don't uh, get conversation. Uh, yeah. Actually, there's a great, have you heard this quote by Washington Irving? Uh, no. It says, uh, there's a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but a power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They're the messengers of overwhelming grief, grief of deep contrition and of unspeakable love. Mm. So thank you. I'm writing that down and we'll use that. Uh, that's that gets to the point. Yes. And, uh, yeah, no, I find that a very powerful, uh, uh, quote, uh, you know, in uh, your book, and I should probably say the title since uh, uh, I'm sure your publisher or, or, or your publicist would like that. <laughs> they would be happy about that. 
Uh, so uh, Dagger's new book is called Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life, which, uh, in fact, it can. Uh, but uh, you talk about uh, indigenous peoples and their wisdom yeah, on some yeah. level. And maybe you could just comment on that and how powerful that is, because so often, mm. uh, and I think, unfortunately, it's been... Uh, uh, a historical reality that uh, white folk, whether it be Europeans or Americans, have dismissed uh, some of the greatest wisdom traditions. Uh, and in fact, as we are seeing, uh, that wisdom gained over thousands of years not only correlates with science, uh, but in fact is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you deeply for asking about that because uh, um, uh, you're one of the first to remind us of this. Yeah, I, um, you know, awe is a self-transcendent emotion. It's, you know, you, you encounter vast mysteries you don't understand and it, it leads you to feel connected to big things in the world. Um, and, and in point of fact, and this really was in conversation with Dr. Yuria Salidwin, who's at the United Nations uh, and soon, I, soon to be at Berkeley. Um, she, she's got extraordinary research going on on the centrality of this idea of awe and self-transcendence in almost all of the indigenous cultures. Uh, there are 5,000 indigenous societies. I think they make up 460 to 500 million people. They're have overcome genocide everywhere, as we know. Um, they largely had oral traditions, and and Yuria has this is beginning this large scale project to translate it and build it into written records and and sort of curate the knowledge of those uh, extraordinary traditions, tens of thousands of years old. And at the core is this idea of what she calls kin relationality, which is. We aren't separate individuals. We're part of collectives. Fundamentally, we are made up of other people. And, and that's awe-inspiring and relates to things we study in Western science related to awe, like uh, being moved by somebody's moral beauty, being part of a collective. And then her very rich idea of ecological belonging, which is, I am part of nature. you know, And, and when I get out and have awe in the natural world, from a rainstorm or the, the blossoms of spring or a forest. And I just feel vibrating with awe and dissolving in myself, sense of self. What the indigenous peoples tell us is you're fundamentally nature, right? You aren't looking at nature as a human. You're just part of an ecosystem, which is true. We lost sight of that in the Western mind. And, and the indigenous peoples have long known this for thousands of years. So through the book, in different places, I relied on this remarkable new scholarship of people like Yuria Salidwin, who are starting to chart these ethical principles that really I found almost astonishing that they've worked this out ethically and located the emotions in these deep beliefs. And now Western science comes along very clumsily, <laughs> you know, and is like, oh, I think, I think we're starting to say the same thing. So that was one of the most exciting. Uh, convergences in, in writing the book was to get to that. Yeah, actually, I've gotten to know Yuria uh, a little bit, and maybe we should just uh, spell her name out. It's Yuria, yeah. Y-U-R-I-A, and her last name is Seledwen, which is C-E-L-I-D-W-E-N. 
but she's a uh, remarkable human being. And uh, this idea of the power of indigenous cultures yeah. is really quite extraordinary if you look into it. And of yeah. course, uh, the sad thing is, again, uh, yeah. the nature historically of uh, biases uh, related to, uh, frankly, uh, Western civilization uh, yeah. that has uh, uh, devalued uh, this type of wisdom. It's uh, sort it's- of... Oh, go ahead. It's ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous, you know, that, I mean, this is wisdom. You know, Yuria makes the point, and you can go to her website, that the, that there are scientific groundings of this wisdom where they're gathering data and making observations and testing them and so forth in different ways than Western science. But, you know, it's uh, it's so rich. And, and she's recently published, I'd really advise our listeners to go to her Lancet article on spirit medicines or psychedelics because yet again the west comes in and there's all this money at play in in the spirit medicine psychedelic movement and they're extracting indigenous knowledge turning it into training programs paying nice salaries for you know and not doing giving due credit or benefits to indigenous peoples who the these traditions come out of so uh, it's really timely for us to be thinking about this. And thank you, Jim, for always having social justice be part of your, your <laughs> conversation. Seriously, I appreciate it. Uriasaleedwin.com. Uh, yes. Uh, well, you know, one of the things I find fascinating, actually, is, of course, as we all know, uh, Buddhist practice has been at the forefront for the last few decades, in part because yeah. of John Kabat-Zinn and a variety of other people. But again, it's the exact same thing. You have this wisdom yeah. that has occurred over thousands of years through uh, experiential experience. And yeah. of course, what happens, a dogma is typically attached, whether it's Buddhism yep. or yep. Hinduism or other types of practices. And uh, But at the core is fact. And, and what I mean yeah. by that is that through repeated experience over thousands of years, they have learned incredible knowledge. And we are seeing uh, how science now confirms what uh, this experience has shown for a long, long time. And I think the other thing you point out is, sadly, uh, the extractive nature of capitalism, uh, which is uh, the people who founded these things, the people who have been at the forefront, uh, their cultures for thousands of years, yeah. uh, are not receiving not only uh, the recognition, but also uh, the incredible um, uh, financial uh, aspects yeah. of this uh, that unfortunately, again, go into the pockets of the powerful uh, and, uh, you know, this is a very sad thing. It, yeah. it always fascinates me. And, uh, I'll, I'll go on my diatribe for a minute or two, <laughs> which is, I love your diatribe, Jim, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, you have Davos, we have this immense gathering of the wealthiest people in the world. And I don't know if you've heard this uh, saying by Tolstoy. I, I, I'll paraphrase it since my memory's not so good. But it, it says something like, um, there is a man on your back choking you. Yeah. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but he never offers to get off your back and stop choking you. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is the nature of, of privilege, right? 
if yeah. anybody questions your privilege, then you feel oppressed. And it's fascinating to hear this narrative where um, uh, we've been given corporate welfare for uh, many, many years. Uh, and we've seen decimation of the middle class by the greed of the corporate yeah. entities and uh, uh, extraordinarily wealthy people. And uh, then if you ever make a comment about this is unjust, it's saying, oh, you're talking about socialism, right? Yeah. And it's sort yeah. of a fascinating <laughs> yeah. uh, narrative. Yeah. All you have to do is read, you know, Michael Lewis's account of, you know, the 2008 economic collapse where a lot of people made a lot of money, a lot of middle class people lost a lot of money. And I think one person went to prison. So, you know, so uh, and he calls it socialism. Our government is socialism for the rich. And uh, he should get credit for that. Um, yeah. But your point again, and I, I just want to, you know, call this to our collective attention, which is that, you know, part of our work is to raise the profile of of these these deep evolved tendencies that do a lot of good for the world that we need awe, compassion, gratitude, beauty. But those always take place within social structures. Uh, and, and we have to be attentive and the mindfulness movement doesn't do enough of this work. Uh, the awe movement probably does not positive psychology does not, which is what are the social structural factors that abuse these, these human qualities, you know, economic inequality, privilege, you know, racism, sexism, et cetera, bias against indigenous peoples, the genocide against indigenous peoples. So, I hear you and I worry about awe, Jim, you know, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a commodification of awe, parts of the psychedelic movement commodify awe, make a lot of money on it. And that's why one of my heroes of the book is Ralph Waldo Emerson, because he felt the same and he stood up to the Harvard Divinity School professors and he said, he gave a speech that led him to get fired that, you know, we can't institutionalize and make money off human goodness. We have to let humans do it on their own. And I think he, in some fundamental way, he's right, that the mindfulness movement's got a little, little too corporate. That will happen with awe, gratitude, self-compassion. So we need to promote it in ways that are democratic. Uh, speaking of that, um, it's always interesting because you look at raising children yeah, and... Uh, uh, there's been a tendency, I think, of saying, well, if you do this, I'll pay you, whether yeah. it's a chore or whether doing good, which actually is a complete opposite of yep. what we should be doing. Because yeah. when you put it in that narrative, again, a child somehow expects to be paid for being kind and compassionate and yeah. thoughtful uh, versus understanding that that is something that actually provides you an immense amount of wealth, but in a different way. Mm. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are raising children today uh, really feel the pressures of, you know, how pressurized schools are, um, whether they're pressurized in nice neighborhoods where there's academic pressure or they're pressurized because there aren't enough resources to like, provide a safe context for schools. So there's a lot of academic pressure, digital pressure, societal pressure on young people, and we're seeing it in this mental health crisis. Um, and, and that really, you know, begs the question of what are our approaches as parents to cultivate things like compassion and awe? And in writing awe, 
one of my heroes became Rachel Carson, this great environmentalist. And she, she wrote very passionately about how society can really dull these wonderful things like compassion and awe. And here's what we can do to bring it back, right? Kid, teach kids mystery, teach them things that they feel awestruck about that maybe they don't, aren't necessarily about math and engineering. You know, you got it. We got to return to that. Um, I think for the health of our kids and, uh, there are some new lessons to how to do it. No, I think that's, uh, exactly right. Uh, you wrote a paper with, um, is it Pi Pfeiffer? Uh, Paul Piff? Piff. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, uh, empathy and how I think the wealthy lose a sense of empathy. Maybe you can yeah. comment on that. Yeah. You know, um, I, have long, you know, growing up as I did and having this odd life experience of going from a middle class thriving school to this poor area. I was like, what's going on? You know, and and uh, and and then it took me a long time to realize that it was really about poverty and class and power. And so I started to do a lot of work on hierarchy and what privilege does to us, what social class does to us. By that I mean your wealth and education and rank in society or prestige. And, you know, we, in the mid 2010s, you know, started to generate all these findings and, and it's not a pretty picture, you know, which is <laughs> if you have privilege and wealth, you know, you feel less empathy, you judge emotions less accurately. That's replicated. You feel less compassion for people who are suffering like kids with cancer. The, the vagus nerve is activated less, this bundle of nerves that, supports compassionate behavior. You share less with a stranger. You keep more for yourself. You take more candy that's meant for kids in an experiment. So, you know, it started to tell us that, and you began our conversation with this question of what divides us? What prevents us from seeing our common humanity and feeling it in empathy and compassion? And you have to put up, up on that list of dividers, privilege, you know, that places of privilege undermine our sense of compassion and empathy and and a sense of common humanity. And I will add, Paul Piff went on to publish with Jake Moskowitz, awe. You, the poorer you are, the more you feel awe on a regular basis, the more you feel like you're part of something large and meaningful. Uh, and so those are lessons uh, to the perils of privilege that I think you and I have long spoken about. No one listens to us. <laughs> A few people do. A few people. Maybe, but man, is that a hard, hard fight to fight? So, well, yes. You know, it's interesting you say that because, uh, uh, in fact, actually, you mentioned some time ago that um, was it Mackenzie Bezos uh -huh. made a donation to the Greater Good Center, which was yes. unexpected, out of the blue, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so here's this person who's extraordinarily wealthy, yeah. who finds individuals who are doing good in the world and just makes a donation without uh, restrictions, recognizing that the work that's being done has incredible power to change society. Where are all those people? You know, it, it's funny. I have an individual who's been somewhat supportive of my work and over, uh, you know, maybe 10 years has uh, uh, donated several hundred thousand dollars. But you know, the reality is he's worth uh, four, three or four billion dollars. Yeah. And you sit there and you go, 
it it would not even be noted, you know, I, I mean, at all, if you, you know, gave 10 times that or 20 times yeah, that. Yeah. And there's so many people in the world who hold on so tightly because wealth doesn't give a sense of generosity. It gives a sense of scarcity, I which I find just the, uh, the most fascinating thing in the world. It's perverse that that happens. I know that. And, and, and not only that, but, you know, and we've done research on this as well, which is that, uh, and it's part of your empathy question, Jim, that wealth and privilege, they, they just dull your eye or your lens onto the needs of the world and you just don't see it. You don't think it exists. We have data showing the privilege underestimate how much poverty there is in the world uh, and around them. And you could think of obvious reasons why. You just don't see the vulnerability and the need and the harm that that acts of charity really fundamentally should be a, a redressing. Um, and so it's it's a serious problem in our culture. It really is. Do you remember uh, Werner Erhard? Yeah, I mean, I remember the Est movement and. I don't uh, know too much about it, but I do remember the name. Well, you know, it's funny. Warner is uh, almost 88. Oh. And uh, uh, over the last few years, he's become a good friend of mine. Strangely. Oh. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah. No, no. He's uh, 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 well, and if you know anything about him, actually, he's quite fastidious. You know, he's is always he really? dressed immaculately, he sits up straight, he's very loud and direct. And, uh-huh. uh, uh, but that being said, I've gotten drunk with him numerous times. So, Good. Uh, uh, <laughs> but the reason I bring his name up is, you know, he started the hunger project many years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. And in fact, Lynn Twista, who you probably know was involved in that. I uh, love him. Uh, yeah. uh, but, uh, uh, you know, we should, I think have another hunger project, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, where we actually, uh, try to motivate, uh, individuals who have those means, to contribute to dealing with hunger and homelessness yeah. in this world. Yeah, and again, uh, it, it's such a small percentage of, of their wealth that would be required to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I always try to think of what is it that would move that needle? Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, somebody has to go through uh, an event that's profound, that's deep, that's um, brings them back to the point where they see how they need other people. Yeah. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of the people and, uh, you know, that class of the 0.001%, it's very hard to have that happen. Uh, But, uh, I think that's uh, a very, very important uh, thing. So I agree 100%. Well, where shall we go now, Decker? (laughs) Wherever you want. (laughs) Um, speaking of nature, uh, yeah. I think it is uh, sort of fascinating because we came from nature, how simply, and I think uh, I, I read an article where uh, an hour in nature a week, even that has a profound effect on not only your, your mental health, but uh, your physical health. Yeah. You know, when um, I, uh, in, in this book, Awe, um, you know, I, well, let me back up a step. You know, it's interesting, you know, the question of health. Um, I wrote this book because I was really struggling personally. I was, um, my brother died. He was you know, fundamental to my sense of meaning in life. He died of colon cancer. 
And like, like a lot of people who are not faring well in the United States, I had a hyperinflamed body. Uh, I was eating poorly. I was sleeping. My, it was terrible. Um, I felt disoriented and anxious and, um, I, I turned to nature, you know, as, uh, in the book, I write about eight sources of awe. One of the most important, one of them is moral beauty, which is just the kindness of people, how extraordinary it is, how common it is, but all nature is right up there, right? All the world's traditions, uh, all the countries that we've surveyed about 30 people just feel fundamentally moved and transformed by nature. Um, the indigenous peoples really, and people like Yuri Salidwin's ecological belonging, this is a fundamental relation to the world, is our relation to nature. And indeed, scholars like Ming Kuo have detailed how, you know, 21 different pathways by which just being in nature changes you. It changes your sense of self. You feel less stressed. You feel your immune system looks better, lower cortisol, different brain functioning, better concentration a sense of awe and wonder about your life, a sense of community. We find if you feel, it's so interesting, Jim, if you go out by yourself and get a good dose of nature in a park or gardening or looking at trees, you will come back feeling like you love humans more. You haven't seen a human, you haven't been around humans, but you feel a sense of common humanity and and that was my first move is to in my personal struggles losing my brother as i wrote this book i was like i just got to get out into the mountains and listen to water and look at the sky and you know i think that data is fundamental to the health of our culture which is yeah an hour a week you know 10 minutes a day of nature to me it's hard to imagine sleep good diet Social community and then nature would be uh, my prescriptions, and it's right at the top of the list. And sleep, yeah, <laughs> which I, uh, which <laughs> that's a whole other issue. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, well, that's interesting. The, uh, but it's it, it's it's sad that uh, again. Yeah. I think that's why it's important to have as an ex example in cities to have parks yeah. and places. Yeah where people can go because that fundamental connection. Yeah. And, and I guess you could say even that is ineffable as yeah. a term you like to use, uh, uh, uh is incredibly powerful. And, and actually, uh, you know, you talk about your eight wonders, uh, I'll, I'll list them since uh, I, I don't know how you could remember them. I have to look at them, but, uh, uh, <laughs> nature, collective movement, visual design, musical or music, mystical experiences, life and death, epiphanies, and the courage of, uh, uh, and kindness of other people. And, uh, that's another interesting thing. This idea of the kindness of other people, people stepping in when you're in need, you know, I, I have given a talk and I, I frequently use the example when we think about things that have impacted our lives, Oftentimes, it's it's one of two things. It's either when you were in a position where you had wanted something extraordinarily badly, and you had used every resource you had, yeah, and it was not happening, yeah. And when you're in that position, at least for me, 
you know, I sit there and say, you know, it's like uh, uh, the sun goes away. uh, It's dark. uh, You don't believe in God. uh, You think the world is ultimately unjust. And then at the last minute, if someone steps in and uh, gives you whatever it is you desperately wanted, within a microsecond, uh, you know, the clouds part, the sun is shining, you believe uh, in a just God again, and you think the world uh, is uh, the right place. Uh, And uh, and it's, it's amazing how that can happen. And conversely, I think some of the experiences that people that stay with them, uh, you know, far beyond many uh, things in which we get uh, transitory uh, pleasure, hedonic uh, pleasure is when you have been that person who stepped in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and save somebody. Yeah. And it's like when you think back and you just sit with that emotion, you've, Again, it brings this idea of common humanity, but being of service, helping others, being present for them. I think that those two things are incredibly powerful. And if you sit with what that brings to you emotionally, uh, it changes things. It does. And, you know, uh, and I suspect you have wonderful examples of that from neurosurgery. But yeah, you know, not only is compassion and sacrifice and courage and overcoming, you know, remarkable in their own right, but they, you know, one of the things that the science of Oz really revealed is how powerful they are in witnessing and observing not only in yourself, but hearing stories of other people's sacrifice and courage and overcoming. And, you know, that is, it turns out in our research, the most universal source of awe alongside nature is People who overcome poverty to do great things in the world, who overcome a physical ailment, who give away a lot of resources. You know, our billionaires out there, um, they should know with those large gifts to the world, a lot of people are inspired, right? Morally inspired. And what's interesting to me, and I think it's still a bit of a mystery, Jim, is, is like you said, those experiences of your own sacrifice and then witnessing other sacrifice and courage are transformative. There are very few things that change us forever, right? Um, that aren't related to death and so forth. But this is one, this is a kind of experience, uh, the witnessing of moral beauty, the enactment embodiment of moral beauty that will stay with you forever. Uh, and, I, and you know, how that is, why it's so powerful, why seeing something on TV or art that's about moral beauty and courage. And that I suddenly am inspired for years. That's pretty interesting to think about how that works. And we don't know. And so that's why we do this, this research and have these conversations is to point out what's remarkable about us and what we need to study. Well, and I think that brings up another interesting point. Uh, uh, there are uh, things like this that uh, are transformative or maybe even the term transcendent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and we don't understand them, but yeah. we know they exist and, uh, uh, they're deeply hardwired, uh, within us. Uh, but the fact that we can't necessarily explain it doesn't negate how powerful they are. Yeah. And, you know, this, uh, you know, the, the study of awe is really the study of, of, and it's really, 
there's a lot of active inquiry right now in the social sciences very broadly of how we transcend ourselves. You know, we are this, we are a very self-serving, you know, machine that uh, has been designed by evolution to gratify desires. But as humans, we transcend that all the time. You know, spirituality, meditation, uh, awe, being out in nature. Interestingly, aesthetics, right? You can go see a film that is, you know, Schindler's List and suddenly you're like, I'm transformed, you know, even though it was fiction and it's not real. And so we need to understand, you know, start to think about why humans develop this sense of transcendence and, and getting beyond sensory reality. And I think it's one of the great mysteries that, that we'll find answers to. I think it's interesting, though, because uh, using even those examples, yeah. uh, and I have used this as an analogy uh, with the Dalai Lama, perhaps unfairly, but uh, it's been my experience is, you know, you have a lot of people, uh, especially in the Western world, who attend events with the Dalai Lama. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, uh, yes, compassion. God, I want to be a better person. I want to do this. And, you know, I'm going to do that. And then, you know, within 48 hours, <laughs> the feeling is dissipated. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And uh, I, I think that's a challenge. And, and uh, is, is it uh, uh, one because of sort of distractions of, quote unquote, the real world, not the uh, imaginary world uh, that you're trying to uh, be a benefit to? Or is it um, because there's not a simplicity of resources available that allow you to connect to something that uh, can not only change other people's lives, but changes your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, it's when we put together, you know, what we've learned from this contemplative science of the Buddhists, uh, studies of compassion and awe and gratitude and self-compassion and beauty, what we've been taught, nature immersion, we've been talking about today. Um, work, new work, new frontier work by Dr. Yuria Salidwin, who thank you for bringing her up, Jim, you know, on what the indigenous traditions teach us about the good life, the meaningful life. We, we have the pathways, you know, and we can feel it. Like you go to a, a Buddhist event or a retreat, or you go backpacking, or you listen to me and you're like, wow, I'm changed. And, and then the challenge is to build it into your everyday life, right? And reality gets in the way for good reason. We got a lot of good, we have to do good work, you know, in the physical concrete reality of life, but, but also, um, it gets in the way because our smartphones don't help us and the content of, you know, CNN gets us distressed and so forth. So, you know, people very selectively use the word practice and I agree. I think, you know, we need 10 minutes a day of this stuff. Um, I learned that writing this book, all grieving my brother, I was lost. And I just committed myself to 10 minutes, like look at a sunset, listen to the, a great piece of music, go to a new piece of music or, or visual work, you know, think about a spiritual teacher or somebody who inspires us. We've got to commit to that um, and, and get it out. You know, we've lost a lot of people in the United States have moved away from religion, especially young people, probably for good reason, according to many, but, but we need to return to kind of these paths to meaning, you know, schools don't teach it. My undergrads at Berkeley 
I asked them a, just the, the deep, meaningful questions like, why would the Holocaust happen? And they're like, what's the Holocaust? You know, oh, well, what, do you, <laughs> what do you think about the soul? Like, what is the nature of the soul? And they're like, are you allowed to use that word? I'm an engineer, right? We need to return to this stuff uh, deeply. Uh, and it's remarkable a neurosurgeon like you would be pushing compassion. <laughs> <laughs> and then a social scientist like me would be like, awe is the answer, but, but we're, we're in need of, of doing this on a daily basis. No, I think uh, uh, a challenge for a lot of people is that they'll sense this and then they'll be overwhelmed by, well, I haven't done enough. Uh, uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. gosh, how could I do that? And, you know, there's an interesting book by uh, B.J. Fogg. Have you seen it? It's called um, Yeah, I've heard of it. Tiny Habits, uh, yeah. The Small Changes That Change Everything. Mm. And I think uh, instead of, and this is one of my own uh, tendencies, if let's say I, I, I say, well, I'm not in shape, then I go out and try to run 10 miles, right? Which is not an effective strategy. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, if you haven't exercised for a long time, uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, versus saying, you know, today I'm going to walk just to the end of to the corner <laughs> and do that every day. And I think this idea of uh, tiny habits or small changes are what are really powerful and effective uh, yeah. in actually giving yeah. people the tools to uh, uh, impact their lives in a positive way. Even, you know, I, I tell people typically at the end of one of my talks, uh, regardless of your position, your wealth, uh, every one of us has the ability to change the life of one person Yeah, in a and positive I, way. Yeah, and you know, that comes out of the compassion literature, which we should always be reminding ourselves of. In the literature on awe, you know, one of the most surprising discoveries is what I call everyday wonder or awe in this book, which is people feel it pretty regularly and we just need to open our eyes. And so the challenge then is to think about the easy ways that don't hurt the environment, that don't cost a lot of money, that you can notice the moral beauty of somebody, right? That you can get out in nature for five minutes in cities, uh, in any kind of environment, look to the sky, that you can listen to music with a mind toward finding a little bit of awe. Um, and I believe firmly, and we've done a lot of research on this, even a minute of day of awe, we're just publishing a paper by Maria Monroy in Scientific Reports, a couple of minutes a day, helped healthcare providers fend off depression and anxiety during the pandemic, right? Just reminding ourselves like, wow, there's awe. I feel awe talking to my old friend, Jim Doty, and, <laughs> and just thinking about the themes we've talked about for 10 years. It makes me feel a sense of shared humanity, right? It's always right there um, and doesn't cost you anything. And I think that's the key is uh, it, it really doesn't cost anything. But And it gets back even to the, our larger picture where we're talking about, uh, as an example, hunger or homelessness. You know, there's so much yeah. wealth out there that yeah. so many of these individuals, it would not even impact their lifestyle. I mean, because, you know, they're very... I mean, what do you need to buy other than out of boredom, right? Yeah. I, I mean, once you have, you know, three or four $10 million homes that sit empty 90% of the time, what is it that you're doing versus doing something that is profound, deep? And, and you know, it's always a, a, an interesting paradox 
to me in America, especially where we have told people or sold a narrative that people with money, power, position are happy. And that's what you should strive for. And that's the definition yeah. of success. And of course, as you know, the problem is if you spend time with these people, don't get me wrong, there are some who are extraordinarily happy. Yeah. Uh, but that being said, a large percent of these individuals are miserable. And yeah. they think that because there's a subset of society that admires them, yeah. therefore they'll show off, uh, you know, whether their house, their car, whatever it is. And then they get this, they get this secondary feeling from people. Go, oh man, you're so cool. You're so great. You have everything. Wow. But it, it's like eating uh, food that has no sustenance because yeah. that emptiness uh, remains. Yeah. And that's why, you know, that's why I think that these sciences of, and practices and contemplative traditions of compassion and awe and beauty and gratitude and the like are so important. Those states, self-transcendent states, tend to make people more generous. They tend to be lost sight of with rises in power and, and privilege, and we need to return to them, you know. Um, and, and again, it's important to remember that they bring about a lot of good at the greater good level of society level and uh, shouldn't be lost sight of. And I would argue, you know, when I wrote Born to be Good, one of my, one of my uh, one of the people who frustrated me most was Ayn Rand in libertarianism, oh. <laughs> you know, and she was like, if any civilization is to survive, it's, a, it's, uh, the morality of altruism we have to reject. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, she got it all wrong. And that tends to, that philosophy tends to prosper a lot in, in very wealthy corners. Of no, I, I mean, certainly in, in the libertarian space, but exactly. you know, it's funny you say, uh, Ion, because I used to say Anne Rand, and yeah. I wrote something about it one time, or I talked about it. And somebody said, "You're an idiot. You don't know how to pronounce her name." <laughs> I said, "Oh, but I'll I tell think... you why she's wrong." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, this is a battle we have to engage in, and and I'm encouraged well, always when I talk with you, Jim. But also these these things like compassion are are ancient. They're intuitive. They're a deep part of human nature. So if we return to them, I think they'll bring about some good in the world. No, I think that's uh, right. To comment on Ayn Rand, uh, you know, at the end of her life, she was on public assistance. No way. Yes, yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it, you know, it oh, reminds God. me of during the 2007 and 2008 crisis, because I would know these people go, you know, those poor people, they just don't want a job and they're lazy, blah, blah, blah. And these are people who were sort of, they're just above the level of, of, you know, doing okay. Then they lose their jobs and they're going, I want prolonged uh, uh, disability payments and I want a subsidy and I oh, want yeah. that. And it, it's, you know, it's easy to be critical when you're not uh, in that position. But um, yeah, uh, I think this issue of, uh, uh, of the reality that it's, it's compassion, it's awe, that frankly is what's going to save our humanity. And if yeah. we can, uh, you know, convince a few people to take on that message and that burden and yeah. uh, uh, promote it throughout the world, uh, I think uh, that will be very, very powerful. And hopefully, uh, I would say if we can uh, just do one act, uh, which is like a drop in the ocean, then we can yeah. uh, create a tsunami. Uh, yeah. 
I'm still waiting for that tsunami, but I'm still I still believe in that possibility. I hear it coming, Jim. <laughs> well, listen, always a pleasure to catch up with you and see how yeah. you're doing. And uh, uh, maybe we can have a side conversation a little bit uh, later about a couple of things I wanted to share with you. Uh, that sounds but, great. Uh, uh, thank you for being with me today. I'm very appreciative and I'm always inspired by your work. And um, I always wish you the best. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Jim, as okay. always. Take care, my friend. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music.